You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Hi, everybody. This is Rick Hadrava, live from the Epic Studios. I'm your host for the Over 50 Entrepreneurial Podcast. Appreciate you tuning in today. And I have to admit to you that as I gave some thought to how I would introduce our guest today, the word serial entrepreneur, and maybe that's two words, but serial entrepreneur kept coming to my mind. You know, I gave it a little more thought, but instead what I found myself drifting towards were the words thinker, artist, and community advocate. His ability to meld the past and the present artistically and to inspire us to be creative as we focus on the future, these have made for a unique blend of experiences for this gentleman. He is the co-founder and CEO of Hostbridge Technology, the owner of Backstage Stillwater. He serves as a director of Simmons First National Corporation and the Oklahoma State University Research Foundation. He is a member of both the OSU Alumni Association and Spears School of Business Hall of Fame, and he has been named an honorary member of the National Academy of Inventors by Oklahoma State University. As if that's not enough, in his spare time, actually over the last 30 years, he has had an interest in restoring historical businesses in the city of Stillwater, where he and his family have resided since the early days of his entrepreneurial journey, we'll say. You know, as, as I have done some podcasting now, I think I've come to the conclusion that the whole way to have a good podcast is to have good content and a good, good guest. And I think you'll find that we've hit on both of those today. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming my guest, Russ Tubner, to the show. Russ, welcome to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Rick, thank you very much. Uh, I, that's a very generous introduction. Well, uh, I'm intrigued to find out where we're going to go from here. <laughs> well, I tell you what, why don't we do this? You had sent me some background <clears throat> information, and as I read through it, I found it very interesting. You made a comment that when you attended Oklahoma State University, you had a hard time deciding whether you were going to major in engineering, architecture, or computer science. And I think what's fascinating is that your father, you sought out his, his input, obviously, your father urged you to major in business and explore, as you put it, your other interests throughout your lifetime. Why do you think that was the way he was trying to influence you at that point in your life? Well, <clears throat> I think there, there are a couple of plausible explanations. One is that uh, perhaps he didn't want to see my academic career go on uh, needlessly beyond four years. <laughs> Good point. So, um, you know, sensing my indecision, he might have, have said, just major in business um, and then work out the other stuff along the way. But I think it was also uh, very insightful um, as well. So setting aside the potential humor of his comment, um, I think maybe he saw something in me that at that time I didn't see in myself. I did, I was aware, I did have a wide variety of interests. Uh, engineering fascinated me. I grew up in that 
um, that era where you can still go down to the Radio Shack store and buy electronics and build your own computer, build your own radio, build all this stuff. And I did all that. Uh, you know, taught myself how to build um, large, powerful radios uh, that ultimately required that I have a license from the um, Federal Communications Commission to operate. So I was very interested in that, but I was also fascinated with music. I, I played music all the way up uh, through my childhood. Um, and then uh, computer science, of course, that, that really piqued my curiosity. So yeah, I really didn't know what to do, but the idea of majoring in business to give myself a grounding uh, to navigate the business world in general terms and then begin to work out those other things well, little did he know, or I know, but his advice basically has been the script for the 40 years to follow. So why don't you spend a little time, one of the things I didn't talk about is that you've actually early on had a company that you end up selling. So was that kind of your first step as an entrepreneur? It was. Um, my first step as an entrepreneur, or what I should say is after I graduated from uh, Oklahoma State University, uh, they wanted me to work for them as a, in a full-time professional capacity. Uh, that sounded interesting. It sounded like a paycheck, kind of, kind of <laughs> cool to have. Um, my wife um, and I were planning on marrying. Um, and I had uh, a dream of working on a master's degree. It's a whole different story. Ultimately, that didn't, the, something had to give when I started my first company, and it was the master's. Um, but it was really as a result of my work at OSU on campus that I uh, really came up with my first product. Uh, now, to set the stage, this was the era, this was 1970, late 1970s, right? Uh, where personal computers were just coming on to um, on the scene, um, and there wasn't just one vendor; there were dozens of vendors. You had IBM over here, you had Apple over here, you had Mac, you had uh, you know Osborne over here, you had Compaq, all these different things, and. Uh, and the dynamic on a college campus at that time was such that in the name of academic freedom, no one could tell anyone else what to buy or not buy. So you had this explosion of technology on campuses in that era. So it wasn't the days of a corporate agreement to buy only HP oh, or no. IBM. <laughs> no, yeah. not at all. Okay. This was no, everyone was just doing whatever the heck they yeah. thought was in their best interest and then presumably someone was going to make them all talk. Now, it turned out that that became me hmm. in, at, for Oklahoma State. And that is that I was the person who would run around and trying to figure out how do I make all of this disparate technology play well together. Well, <clears throat> so that's that. So if, if you really look at my background, both kind of professionally and then and vocationally, avocationally, this whole theme of integration um, is a big word for me. It, it describes a lot about what I not only do uh, functionally in the world of bits and bytes, uh, but also with um, bricks and mortar okay. at the same time, as well as what I hope to, what I aspire to be as a human being. But anyway, um, it was really through a set of circumstances at Oklahoma State 
that uh, caused me to start my first company. And that is that somewhere in the early 80s, Oklahoma State purchased for a research group a very large mini computer made by Digital Equipment Corporation, a company that no longer exists. Right. Um, and uh, we installed it in the basement of the Mass Sciences Building, right next to the IBM mainframe. Well, uh, the IBM mainframe and the digital equipment uh, box or the deck system didn't communicate. And given that, I was going to have to run the stairs about a dozen times a day if I wanted to check on both systems. So it kind of became a passion for me. It's like, how can I use my IBM terminal on the first floor of the, of the Mass Sciences Building to check on the health and well-being of the deck computer in the basement? without having to run stairs. Well, there wasn't anything out there that could do that, and so I, I wrote a piece of software to do that. Really? And uh, I, could, I, I got to where I could run my software on the mainframe. I then created, figured out, I had enough electronics background to be able to figure out how to make the IBM, talk to the deck physically. And before I knew it, uh, I was actually able to do exactly what I did. No one, I didn't really know that what I'd just done, it hadn't been done. No one really told me that. But it just, to me, the value was I don't have to, I'd stay off the stairs. Right. Right. Um, however, uh, the way my first company got started was uh, I built this capability, this software. And in that era, there was a very common uh, magazine, kind of a trade publication. Uh, that uh, all of us in the industry received every other week or something like that. It was called Computer World. Mm -hmm. And one, this was probably now the mid-80s, uh, there was an article in Computer World uh, announcing that MCI Telecommunications uh, was going to launch the very first electronic mail network or system for corporate customers. Now, the which was neat, nice, cool. Um, that's just to show you how far we've come right. you know, over my life. Um, but the pictures they showed of this G-Wiz electronic mail network showed a picture of a terminal, a computer terminal made by Digital Equipment Corporation. But they were clearly trying, so that's, you could tell, okay, this email system must be based upon a deck mini computer like the one in our basement. But but their intended target were corporations, large organizations. Now what do they have on their desk? Well they have exactly the same thing that I had on my desk, an IBM, a dedicated IBM terminal or device. So it's like I still remember looking at that ad going, someone, this is my opportunity, right? There's, there's the disconnect here. Right. I know how to solve this disconnect. Now that might have been, you know, uh, it might have been good at that juncture that I did major in business because I was able to identify very quickly. I had a real marketing problem here, right? What am I going to do? Show up at MCI, knock on the door, and say, "Hi, I'm Russ. I know you have a problem, and I'm here to help." No, I don't think so. So um, I'll tell a bit more of the story, but please the, do. The way it, the way it all turned out was. I signed up for MCI Mail. I uh, went down to the computer center one evening and I used my software to 
uh, log into their computer system, their, their mail service. And I, I still remember sitting down in the basement on an IBM terminal using their system, and I sent them the help desk a message. I said, hi, my name is Russ. Um, I can't, I posed some question. I can't quite figure out how to start a paragraph or something like that, um, because these were kind of old school word processing uh, systems. Um, thank you very much, Russ Tudner. Then if it's, at the end, it was PS, by the way, I'm sending you this message from an IBM terminal using a piece of software I've developed. Do you think anyone else would want to do this? And just left it at that. Uh, a day later, I got a very nice reply back. And um, it said, uh, dear, dear Russ, here's how you start a paragraph, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, so they answered my question. And then it said, by the way, you must be mistaken about using an IBM terminal with our service. IBM terminals are incompatible, period. Fondly, MCI Mail. <clears throat> now it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> you got them hooked now. I got them hooked now. Right. So I sent back another email an hour later and said, thank you very much for your insight on how to start a paragraph or whatever it was. Then I said, rest assured, my as I send you and type this message, my fingertips are touching the tops of keys permanently affixed to an IBM terminal on which are engraved the letters IBM 3278. Then it's period, this can be done. <laughs> Got a response back even quicker, and the response was very simple. We'll have someone call. I bet you did. So that's, and um, there's, a, there's a wonderful story about who called and how it all worked out from there. But that was really how I launched my first company. And that first company uh, kind of grew and grew uh, until in the late 90s um, during the tech bubble. Mm -hmm. um, a, a publicly held French software company wanted to make um, an entrance into the U.S. market. They worked in some related areas that I was in, and one thing led to another, and I agreed for them to acquire that company, so we merged the companies together, and uh, Tubner & Associates, the name of my company, became Esker Software. They're still around today, and if you went to their website and looked at the product line and looked carefully, you can still see our DNA Laying around the uh, laying around the room, we're real happy about that. You know, it's fascinating to me is I see necessity meets opportunity in that, but that goes back. So I go back to where I just started uh, this whole question, and it was with your dad, kind of pointing you in that direction, and who knew, right? And so, well, that, so that's uh, that's a fascinating story, and um, I think. You know, you think about college and and um, how many times we we leave college not really ready to think about an opportunity like you've you've um, just unfolded for us. How so? So was your next step uh, host bridge technology? It was so um, during just to complete that first company. Um, it taught you know that those were the the. Those were wonderful entrepreneurial days, yeah. right? 
we, we grew fast. We grew based in Stillwater, although our customers were always everywhere else but Oklahoma. Uh, we were in the Inc. 500 three years in a row. I think it was like 93, 94, 95, something like that. Uh, it was it was barely survivable, survivable insanity is the way I would describe those days. Um, now, when when I sold the company, um, then, you know, things changed for me. I, uh, with the new company, I um, ended up being a very, very involved in the merger and subsequent M&A activities, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which sounds really fascinating, and it was, but it also meant that I spent more than my fair share of time um, in meetings with accountants, attorneys, and staring at spreadsheets. And I do believe I went a full two years without ever having had a meaningful conversation with a current or future customer about a product they might actually care about. And so after a couple of years, uh, I realized that in some respects, that just wasn't, what I was doing wasn't me. Um, so I, I essentially left active management of the company. I stayed on the board of directors for quite a few more years. But it was really right then in 2000 that I decided, okay, it's time for me to get back to my, I'd say my entrepreneurial roots, but more specifically my creative roots. Uh, Nothing gets me up quicker in the morning than thinking that there's an idea I can work on, something I can create. Um, That really jazzes me up. Uh, Thinking that I'm getting up in the morning to go talk to um, you know, my attorney or my accountant, God bless them. It, do, it doesn't provide quite the same, you know, adrenaline rush. It's an evil necessity yeah. at times. <laughs> well, let me go back to this because um, I was just sitting here listening to you thinking about this. So when you sold the company, um, you know, a lot of times we find when people do sell their business that within a year or two, they're completely like unhappy with that decision. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have a regret that you sold that company? Um, it was a yes and no thing. Um, so I'll tell you the no part first. Um, we knew that, that uh, I, I didn't have to sell the company. I chose to sell the company. Uh, and I did it based upon the my prediction of the amount of, or my estimate of the amount of capital that it would take to to take that company to the next step to that next level that, to that next yeah. level and because uh, the final product that we created in that company uh, was one that potentially could have uh, re- required a substantial amount of investment capital in order to really get um, an entry and a good place in the market. So I was either I either had to you know resign from that market segment if I did and choose not to enter. I needed to go out and raise additional capital, or I needed to contemplate a transaction. Now, in fact, I went out and was seeking to raise capital, and was really in the process of doing that that this other company came and said, uh, "Hey, this might be more efficient and get us all where we want to go." Uh, and they were right. Um, the only downside, well, I, I, there, there are two, I do have some regrets. One is 
Um, at Tubner & Associates, at the time we did that transaction, we had 70 plus people in Stillwater, Oklahoma in a technology company. And that was in the 90s. That's unheard of. That was unheard of at the time. And they were a fabulous group of women and men. Just unbelievable. And so the transaction was kind of the first step toward many of them finding other jobs uh, because they didn't find uh, the new work environment maybe quite as uh, as exciting as it was before. So I I still meet people uh, who used to be my employees and we reminisce about how wonderful it was. And it really was. It was it was a, it was great. Yeah. Um, so I regret that. The other thing I regret is right. I said I did this uh, deal right after the tech, right, right during the tech boom, and um, while I was still in active management, um, the tech bust occurred, and therefore a fair amount of the consideration that I accepted. For that transaction on the earnout on the earnout yeah. disappeared. Okay, so um, you know, so I that's that was also a little bit of um, not a little bit, a lot. So it had a lot to do with the fact that okay, I wanted to start a new new company for kind of get out of the uh, get back into the creative business, mm -hmm. but also. I kind of thought, you know, I need to go rebuild my capital position um, from from that transaction, and so that for me is what Hostbridge uh, has been a big part of. Okay. Um, so now with Hostbridge, we we started it in 2000, so now we're in about 2019, so we're almost 20 years into it, and um, I, I've. I've structured this company, and really I run this company kind of as what I would think of a, as a keeper. So um, not that, I mean, we have offers to acquire it uh, periodically, but, um, you know, we, we run it for ourselves. And we also run it very lean, in a very lean way. Um, so... But anyway, we, it's it's still kind of uh, all of my company software inventions or companies have been a variation on the theme of helping organizations integrate their existing technology, usually some large IBM mainframe, uh -huh. and various sorts of distributed technologies such as you know your Microsoft Surface, my iPhone, my iPad, things like that. Do you do you think that? Um so you, you, it's a, you say Hostbridge is your keeper, and, and it's fascinating to me because that's one of the things when we work with business owners and we have those conversations, it's like you're either going to exit or transition this company someday to a family member or an outside third party or key employees, or you're going to keep this company for the duration, and those things might still happen. But it's how you view that approach and that outcome mm -hmm. that you see. So it's interesting to hear you. Uh, I, I haven't heard anybody describe their business as that that kind of description as a keeper. So it, it's interesting to me. Well, yeah. And it's having said that, when I say I, I'm building it as a keeper, it means I could keep it. Yes. Right. Right. I have that option. Um, I mean, we're profitable. Uh, everyone makes great money. 
So it's like, okay, I, I can keep this. We can keep doing this as long as we want. There are a number of things that can uh, impede that, right? That, that, that transform keepers into sellers pretty quick. <laughs> All the time. All the time. Yeah. So even though I might have done my best, uh, there, you know, it, it can be as simple as uh, an offer that's too good to be true, mm-hmm. right? That can, uh, Somebody comes knocking on the door and says, Russ, here's a blank check. Here's a blank right? check. I, I understand. Uh, or, um, you know, health considerations. Sure. Uh, now, we have one of, one of my objectives now is to make sure that we build out our technical team a bit so that we can survive any one key member uh, having a health event or a crisis of some kind. Um, and, you know, one of those is me, right? Because there are, if you really look at the company, there are um, three individuals that really are the spark that that create new product, new initiatives that, that uh, create value. That's not to say there aren't many others who then build upon that or whatever, but the, right now there are three. And so I need to make sure that all of us have backup plans, uh, that we have redundancies, things like that. And, you know, we've done okay at that. Um, but we're, it's, a, it's a work in progress to make sure. So <clears throat> what is your biggest challenge in that? Because there, it sounds like a little bit of cross-training needs to go in. And do you document many of the processes so that, you, you know, you have a manual, if you will? Yeah. And, and what are the challenges to making that happen? Because I think that's a good point for our audience who, who you know, they're running their business and um, they're thinking about these things because we find that issue often. Well... Our, um, so let me start to, to understand, uh, getting tongue tied, to really answer your question, do it justice. I have to start with uh, maybe with what we do. And that is that um, our, in the Hostbridge product line, our software products run on large IBM mainframes and achieve some degree of integration with an otherwise incompatible thing. And that thing can take. It can be salesforce.com, right? We are working with one customer right now who wants to integrate Salesforce to their existing billing applications on mainframe. Um, an, a wonderful customer of ours is uh, Packar, a public company uh, that uh, their leading brands are Kenworth and Peterbilt. They use our software as part of, of how the, uh, the mainframe-based parts database and application communicates with the factory floor. In other words, it's still an existing mainframe communicating with something otherwise wouldn't be possible to do. Now, so what that means is if you look at the experience in our company that I have to have, I have to have people who have a broad range of experience because we go everywhere from mainframe architectures that have been around for decades down to the latest and greatest uh you know, new G-Wiz technology that corporations are trying to deploy in the, in the organization. So my biggest concern is making sure that we have enough, the, the fewest possible headcount to cover the greatest range of technology. So, and and it's worked for us, right? That That's a key hiring criteria. Uh, do I want someone who knows 
um, this won't make any sense, but do I want someone who knows MVS assembly language and MVS internals? Yes, but they got to know more than that. I want them to also have a passion to learn C and C++, also to have a passion for understanding the latest and greatest analytics platforms like Splunk. Um, so we really are looking for people who are jacks of all trade in one sense, but who are stalwarts in one. So, you know, I go way back in the world of IBM mainframes. That's kind of my strong peg. But then I have these other areas where I'm pretty good at as well. And all of us on our team are like that. So, so you know, for succession planning, for team building, we're constantly looking at what does this person add as his kind of uh, peg in the corner of our tent, and then what else can they do uh, with other technologies? Because that's really, that's our competitive differentiator with our customers. Um, the, the odds are high that uh, Scott James or myself can go into any of our large corporate customers and be in one room, one of us be in a room and facilitate a conversation with people in an organization who are, that is highly siloed. So they know what they know and the other party knows what they know, but no one knows it both. We're pretty good at, at integrating um, across those silos within an organization. And that's what we're known for. Wow. Well, it, so one thing just struck me. It's um, you, you, you've established two technology companies and both in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and you were kind of early to the whole, you know, we're seeing a trend now where people are thinking alternative to Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. and you were you were kind of way ahead of the curve on that. Why why didn't you move your company out to California? It seems to me, and we've talked about this in the past. You travel a ton. Right. Most of your most of your clientele are outside of Oklahoma. Right. So, <clears throat> Russ, why why do this in Stillwater, Oklahoma? That's a great question. Um, I I think I can answer it. Uh, your listeners will have to. Decide for themselves if they if they buy it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's give it a try. Yeah. Well, the you know the original the reason we stayed there after I started Tudner and Associates was because it was clear that um, well by then my two things were clear my customers were going to be anywhere but the state of Oklahoma and um, we we had one and a half ch ch children at the time <laughs> had one and one on the way and. We both grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and so the math was essentially, well, okay, I'm going to be traveling, but if we moved to Dallas or California or whatever, then my wife wouldn't, and family would not be nearly as close to family resources over in Tulsa to be able to pitch in as needed. So it was kind of, okay, we'll, we'll figure this out, we'll grow it in Stillwater, and uh, and have the advantage of our kids being able to grow up in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which we fell in love with. Wonderful school system. Um, not, not to mention having OSU there. And so, yeah, I traveled. Now, at, during that era, of course, Stillwater did not have air service via American Airlines as it does today. So I was, I don't even know how many times I've driven to the Oklahoma City Airport or Tulsa Airport. 
so many times in my life that I, I don't remember. Kind of became second nature? Yeah, second nature. Get in the car, get on the phone, handle my telephone calls, get to the airport, get on the plane, get going somewhere. Right. Um, now, the last four years or three years now, it's been wonderful because now we have air service from Stillwater. So um, whenever I get on a plane or land in Stillwater, I have this big grin on my face because uh, my house is literally eight minutes to the airport and I can, you know, not getting stuck in traffic. I'm not getting stuck in traffic. <laughs> I, ha- I don't even pay for parking. <laughs> so, okay, so I get early on family and children, and, yeah. and those are great values um, because sometimes, let's face it, as entrepreneurs, we sacrifice family for these things, and, and we've seen that. But have you ever thought, as, you, as the children have gotten older mm-hmm. and your business has expanded, has it ever kind of come into your mind the possibility of, of moving, or you've always... Just well, decided to do it right there in Stillwater. Kind of during the during the first company, I did think many times about uh, moving to Dallas because at least then I would be at a hub and uh, could get anywhere I needed to in a direct flight. Um, but obviously, uh, then you know our kids were growing up; they were in the school system. Uh, then they all attended Oklahoma State University, and so it really wasn't about. 10 years ago until uh, all the kids were gone. Uh, the calculus about where we were to live did change. Um, and that's because by then we had now acquired a number of historical properties in downtown Stillwater. We were in various stages of renovating those properties. I've got some properties right now that, uh, you know, kind of the inventory of properties to be developed right now, as I'm sitting here, it's probably another three to five years. So it's like, uh, it's kind of, Stillwater for us just became the place, the city, the community we care about. I understand, yeah. And um, and it's um, Stillwater based, Stillwater we have our core team, uh, not everyone who's involved with Hostbridge lives in Stillwater. We have people in Oregon, in California, in Texas, but uh, the core team is still in Oklahoma, and we uh, and, and it's not even on my radar screen to contemplate moving it at this time. Well, knowing you and the conversations and experience we've had in the past, um, I've gotten to see some of this real estate, and so I know. You have projects that are going to keep you right where you are for a very long time. Talk to me, since you've gone down that road, let's talk about your real estate projects because here you are, entrepreneur, you've got this tech company, you're you're traveling all over the place, but yet you've had a passion for getting into Stillwater and taking some of the old buildings, the business buildings, and renovating them. Where did that come from and why did you get started in that? Well, it's a good question. Uh, early on, when I did get involved, I think my sanity was questioned uh, publicly. <laughs> but uh, I'm happy I did it now. Uh, I got started in it, in, first of all, because um, I had a growing business in Stillwater in the early 90s. Uh, we, I had more technologists uh, than I expected working for me. We were working in uh, very cramped conditions, and so... What I needed to do was figure out where, where's our new home? Where are we going to go? Well, um, you know, 
in a, in a community like Stillwater at the time, there weren't a lot of options. I could go buy a plot of ground on the outskirts of town, build a metal, like delightful metal, metal building, and call it good. That, however, didn't have any attraction to me. Because if we, if I or we as a company spent all our time interacting with people outside our city, then if we went to work on the outskirts of town, we'd never even get to know the community itself, right? We'd be completely isolated. And so, so, so that was the reason that you focused on downtown. Yeah, so then I started looking at downtown. And at that time, there were downtown was not, it, there was life down there, but it wasn't lovely. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the downtown you see today. Uh, the building that the first building I acquired, I acquired out of an SBA foreclosure. Uh, the second building I acquired uh, came out of, uh, not exactly, but sort of a similar situation, a business departure. So these were, this downtown was not a thriving place. But what it did have in these, these old historical buildings just really attracted me. Maybe this is where a bit of my you know, architectural uh, energy uh, came out. But the, uh, but what really kind of lit up my imagination about the buildings downtown was that I wanted the buildings to kind of be an experiment. And that is, in the software world, a world you cannot see readily, we develop software to allow something that's historical or, or existing to integrate well with something that is new and emerging. And we do that through bits, lines of code, right? Well, what I want to just figure out is, could we take these centuries old, century old building and embed in it the same kind of modern, uh, life-giving sort of, of, of a- attributes that we do in the software world? In other words, could the buildings be for our customers a visual in a visual image of what we aspired to do with our technology. So if you walked into those buildings, you, you will literally see, you know, we, we will never hide the history of anything, right? Heavens forbid, we're gonna show those gnarly brick walls. Um, but when we put something new in there, we're not afraid for it to be we don't make old things look new, and we don't make new things look old. We try to find, my design ethic there is to try to always put new and old in a juxtaposition to where they add value. Interesting. And so the buildings, uh, but when we got them all done, or the first set of buildings done, we literally used images from around the building on our website and in our brochures because we wanted uh, people to understand that we we do know how to be obsessive about detail. We do have, we do understand that both something old and something new, whether it's you know bricks and mortar or software systems in a large corporation, they both have something to contribute. The trick is how do you integrate them with a degree of fidelity. So the buildings kind of took on a life of their own. Um, then I bought another one and another one. Um, and so, like you say, I have, I have many more buildings uh, right now uh, to attend to, but it's, it's my passion. 
It, it, absolutely. Well, so that then brings me around to something completely different from HostBridge. And tell me a little bit about Backstage Stillwater, because I've had the opportunity to be there for a couple different events in the past few years, and it's a fascinating thing. So for an entrepreneur, there's a whole different outlet that I see for you in Backstage. T tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about where that fits and, and what you're trying to accomplish there. Well, thank you for noticing it. Uh, it has been a real work of passion over the past uh, four or five years since it got started. Uh, first of all, Backstage Stillwater is a hospitality venue. Um, and uh, I, it's kind of hard to describe, so I would encourage your listeners to simply go to uh, backstagestillwater.com. And you can, I think there's a, a tab along the top of the website that says tour. And you can actually take a look, a little uh, guided pictorial tour of the space. The, but the real idea um, was right about then, about four years ago, um, things were really beginning to happen in Stillwater in, in kind of the arts and cultural arena. Um, OSU President Burns Hargis had announced uh, his commitment um, for the OSU Art Museum in downtown Stillwater. Then a number of years later, announced the creation of the McKnight Center for the Performing Arts. So it's like we've been in um, a phase in Stillwater, and those of us who track and align closely with OSU, we, um, we've really been focused on the arts. Well, um, I happen to have an art collection that I've put together over the years just for my own enjoyment. Um, but, you know, I began thinking, what could I build in Stillwater that would really add life to the community? And so creating this hospitality venue that is unlike anything you can find for a two-hour drive, at least, um, was my answer. Um, given the travels that I've had, I've, I've had the good fortune of attending meetings and seminars in all sorts of fabulous venues, domestically and internationally. And there wasn't anything like that in Stillwater. That's correct. Yes, I totally agree with you. So, you know, if you were the president of, let's say you wanted to host your prospective customer somewhere, uh, where would you do that in Stillwater? Well, your choices were very limited. Uh, if you were the president of the university or a dean of, of a school and you wanted to have, have a gathering, uh, a celebratory gathering for this, that, or the other, where would you do that? Well, those were some of the reasons why I decided to do this. I also did it because I wanted to try my hand at the design. And because I think when you're in the software world, or those of us who are creators, makers in the software world, you know the degree of creativity that is required to do that. Um, but not everyone else does. And so you're really kind of frustrated creative makers. You know, you're just a little <laughs> frustrated. Um, you know, and so I had certainly got with the buildings, we had certainly got to the point to where I was kind of putting my creative spin on spaces. But never before had I really tried to assemble in a space 
uh, not only the, the macro level bits of the design, but the very the ultimate details of the design, the art, the lighting, the color palette, you know, the ceiling apparatus, all, all of this stuff. And so uh, that kind of became my passion for a couple of years, uh, figuring out how I could turn an old server room into wine storage, uh, figuring out how I could take uh, and you know, bring life into what was uh, formerly light industrial workspace. Um, and then kind of the, the challenges you have to think through. I mean, just, just that. How do you bring life into a otherwise dull industrial workspace? And to me, it, it boiled down to, given the spaces I'd been around, it had to bring, first of all, you've got to bring humanity. You've got to, you've got to bring humanity uh, into the space. You have to bring color into the space. And if possible, you need to bring story into the space. Mm-hmm. And so it was really with uh, with those drivers. Uh, that's how we ended up with the five uh, images by Andy Warhol, which are the dominant uh, artwork in that space. Uh, and they're the five images that have something to do with Oklahoma, or at least relate to our history. Geronimo died in Oklahoma. Annie Oakley performed in Oklahoma. Custer fought in Oklahoma. The Trail of Tears ended in Oklahoma, and of course Teddy Roosevelt signed the state into existence. And so, you know, so it, it was getting all of this together that can create a, a place, a box, space that I want. When someone walks into this room, I want them to feel a bit of disorientation. I, I want them to go, "How did this happen? Where am I? What what happened?" And it's absolutely the case. Um, because you can't see this from the outside. You have to actually go through a, um, not a hidden passage, but an obscure pathway yes. to get there. And when you get there, I, I just, I don't even want you to know which way is north, east, west, or south. I want you to <laughs> just immerse yourself in, in the creative work. And so um, I loved the process, but it was a very humbling process. Um, humbling for many reasons. Uh, because I had to go learn a lot um, about how to pull it off. But it was also, I still remember the opening night. The opening event of Backstage was in conjunction with the OSU Music Department with this grand musical gala. It was amazing. And so I knew many people there, and uh, they knew of me. And so uh, I had this one gentleman come up to me. He goes, Russ, this is really great. And just looking around, he said, "Who designed it?" And I, so I, my first attempt was a, a humorous remark. It says, "Well, it depends if you liked it or not." And he said, "No, I love it. I love it. Who designed it?" And I go, kind of hung my head, and I go, "Well, I, I guess I did." And he goes, he kind of looked at me, and he goes, "No, I don't mean who paid for it. I mean, <laughs> I mean." Who, who, who designed it? Like, who decided that that light there and that artwork there and this over here and that were there? And I go, well, I did. And he looked at me kind of, he did a double take and he looked at me and he said, but I thought you were a software guy. That is, that is so profound, yeah. right? Because as entrepreneurs, I think, I think about this a lot. Um, 
because I think as entrepreneurs, we're put into the boxes we start in and almost like you're not allowed to grow. Well, yeah, just think about your audience, the over 50 entrepreneur, how many boxes they've been put in their entire life. And now they're wanting to maybe move out of one of those boxes to be seen in a different way. Absolutely. Um, Now, I'll tell you, when he said that, my heart fell. I mean, I almost wanted to tear up. (laughs) (laughs) But but because... It, I realized, I mean, the constraints that we, that others hold us in, not unkindly, this right. is, but, but they just do. So Russ, no one thought Russ the software guy could somehow become Russ the artistic creative guy. But you know what's fascinating is really your whole career So the word that describes you is really integration. It's integrator, whether it's systems and technology or it's bringing these buildings and the art and the history in, I mean, that's that's what I hear you saying. But to your point, it does take that element of courage, right? Mm -hmm. Because people, they're, they're not spiteful. No. They're accustomed to you in your role. And, um, and I wonder how many of our listeners, have that same experience and and so i think you're a great example of of what is possible out you know just going down a path and not worrying what people think which is really hard to do yeah i mean these these voluntary constraints on our creative potential um that the world kind of they've affirmed us over here but something in our heart tells us we want to go break right and go there Right. right, different direction. Well, a lot of times we'll kick in, right, and we'll say, "Well, no, I'm good over here," but my heart tells me I want to do something over here. I think, you know, um, if you're over fifty and you're wanting to be an entrepreneur, you will face that, right? Those those thoughts will go through your mind, but it doesn't. I would not be, given my own experience, I wouldn't be surprised at all that many of your listeners are going to be doing something in the second half of their career that is substantially different than what they did in the first half and somehow are finding it far more generative in their life, far more creative, far more life-giving, um, and and actually just to a big degree somewhat redefinitional, right. redefining who and what they are about. Russ, I said this on a, on a show not long ago, and it's always been kind of where I've been thinking as I'm entering the second phase. And I always say I gave the first half doing it the way that I was told it needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And now I have the pleasure um, of being older and I can spend my next 25 years or whatever it is um, doing it the way I want to. Um, and not, I think as you get older, we care what people think, but we don't care as much, right, on a lot of the same things. And I think that's what brings us a whole level of freedom mm-hmm. to go out and explore because, like you with it, if this didn't work, it would it would crush you maybe, maybe inside a little bit, right, because we're all competitors and that's where our creativity comes right. from. We want to be successful. But you also have enough experience to know that's part of the journey. 
right, mm-hmm. is going out there, following that passion, and testing and seeing, seeing what comes out on the other side. Uh, one thing I want to do is um, you've mentioned to me that you address younger entrepreneurs um, periodically, and I think it'd be interesting to share a little bit of what you share with our older audience, um, or maybe we have younger people listening to the show yeah. that are wanting to get into the entrepreneurial part of, of life. So can, would you share with us a little bit of, on your message? Well, sure. I love talking to groups of young would-be entrepreneurs. Uh, when I uh, go speak at a class on campus at Oklahoma State or at other places, um, you know, I usually begin the process, you know, raise your hand if you'd like to be an entrepreneur if you strive for that in a part of your career. And of course, 80% of their hands go up. <clears throat> and then we start drilling down um, on that. What does that mean? So you know, I'll, I'll usually pick one or two friendly faces when we dialogue uh, and ask them, okay, so what does it mean to you to be an entrepreneur? And, and a lot of times what uh, they will say will be at, at that stage of their life will be uh, well being an entrepreneur means I'll be in control of my time I'll be in control of what I, I can earn um, I'll have more flexibility blah you know, blah 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 um, now of course part of my role in that is to kind of bring them back to reality um, and we'll talk about that in a minute but I still remember a conversation I had with one student. I said, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to be an entrepreneur. I said, well, no. What do you want to do? Well, no, I want to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's like, no. So I said, in my experience, there are no professional entrepreneurs. Um, there's, there's, no. I suppose there are some those who make a living writing books or doing whatever to help other people be entrepreneurs. I suppose they, that's the only category I know. Right. But every entrepreneur, you're going to go do something. There is some other passion or there better be some other passion animating what you want to do. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. Yes. What was I going to do? I was going to take every ounce of creativity and energy and figure out how I could overcome a technical hurdle that 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 meant that computer A couldn't talk to computer B. That's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it. I, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, but I have a, I have a thing I'm going to, to do in that way as an entrepreneur. It's a great point. One one of the questions that we dive into with our entrepreneurs is defining what is the problem that they solve, right? Because back to your point, there is no real just entrepreneur role. They, they have to have a product or, or a service that solves a problem, mm-hmm. right? And, and so that's, that's very interesting. Um, what, what advice do you give young entrepreneurs? Well, the first one is find that problem, okay. right? Number one, and then also to a certain extent, I try to disabuse them of some of their misconceptions. Uh, in the early stage of any venture, um, you, and if it really is worth your time, and there may be a market for it or whatever, uh, you will probably not have more time 
your life will not be more flexible. Uh, you will have so many things trying to gobble up whatever money is in your checking account. <laughs> That's that, true. That so you need to approach this very realistically, very humbly. Um, that that you know this you may get to the point to where you you have that sense of freedom. You have that sense of of. Uh, uh, you know, agency in, in your entrepreneurial journey, but I know very few that start out that way. No one, no one is going to plunk plunk on your desk uh, fifty thousand dollars to invest in your business and your idea until they are absolutely convinced that you could make it work without it and would make it worth without it. It's just that now that little bit of investment is going to accelerate you. That's an interesting point because I see a lot of people, younger people especially, but think that if you have a great concept and idea, then you can go raise a bunch of money and then hopefully that becomes a reality. <coughs> and I've always thought that's an interesting investment thesis because I would much rather invest in a company that has a proven strategy with some financial around it, um, but, but none of that happens overnight. Right. Nothing happens overnight, you know. I, you know, if I um, ideas are easy to come by, right? right? I have a I have a notebook filled with ideas. Um, the, but no one is beating a path to my door to you know uh, to buy or pay money for page thirty three in my idea book, right? <laughs> You've got to go flesh that out, work it out, because. So you're right. You're absolutely right. Well, it's execution. I mean, there are ideas. I'm like this, and I'm assuming this is what you're talking about. I have ideas that I think about, and a week later, they've flushed themselves out. And I have other ideas. And I'll be honest, this podcast was something that I couldn't get out of my head, mm -hmm. right? To the point right. that it would wake me up at night, and I realized that I had to execute to at least see where that was. And, and that's what I hear you saying is... Nobody's going to do anything until you go out and, and prove it and, and get that executed. Yeah, um, I agree. Unless it is, I'm, I'm, I have to allow, I guess, theoretically for some very unique ideas that might solve world peace, you know, in one fell swoop or whatever. But, but in the real entrepreneurial world that you and I live in, you, if you have an idea, you've got to go work that idea and prove out that idea. Um, to make it viable. You know, the, the number one mistake I see many entrepreneurs make, and even uh, I get to judge a number of business plan competitions every year, um, the, the one thing that always seems to uh, be lacking is competitive analysis. And, you know, it's, it's and I always push entrepreneurs uh, on that. I mean, you know, the fact that Rick and Russ come up with a great idea this afternoon. Yeah. It may be a one-of-a-kind idea. And truth be told, we really want to think it is. Just, just, it gets us excited. It gets us excited, right? and yeah. we kind of have that glow just another day or two. Yeah. We really don't want to go research it and find out that two other guys in Mumbai had that idea six months ago, and it's already an app, right? So we live in such a world such an interconnected world um, that 
um, we, you really do have to, it's hard sometimes, but it, it just must be done. Um, we have to scrub our ideas uh, very, very hard. Russ, it's, I'm so glad you went there. That's a wonderful point. And I, so, you know, something for our entrepreneur audience to, li- to think about is you have that idea and you've written it down and it's been there and you feel like you have to do something. But to your point is go out and I mean, with the Internet today, it, do- it doesn't take long, right? Social media to go out there and see if that concept exists and what it looks like and really start to think about the viability of the idea before you get too far down the road and your checkbook is deplenished. Uh, but the, the other side is that's a great opportunity to not only see if your idea is unique, but maybe learn a little bit more about it. So is that kind of, yeah. is that a process that you, you um, adhere to with some of the stuff that you do? Well, I try to, but I'm like everyone else. As soon as I come up with a great idea for a piece of software, I really want to believe that <laughs> it, this is a one-off sort of a thing. Um, for example, um, two years ago, I really been, was working on a, uh, the design and development of a new software product in our Hostbridge product line. And um, I mean, and I, I went to the, fortunately, I went through the whole process of patenting this particular idea. It's now winding its way through the patent office, which is a whole different story. But um, I was sitting in a presentation yesterday of another product and I saw for the first time that someone else was they were they didn't solve exactly the same problem we solved but they used a but they clearly came to it with a very similar mindset and approach uh, not if I don't think it will invalidate our product but it was just one of those moments where I thought wow um, I've tried to do good due diligence on this. Uh, I miss these guys. Now, they may turn out to be a business partnership opportunity later on because we've got part of the solution. They've got part of the solution. Maybe we can do something together. But, um, yeah, I constantly, especially in the software world, there are so many people out there writing code today as we speak. Um that, um, you know, doing due diligence is absolutely required and doing it is hard. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so I'd say especially if the idea uh, is predicated on technology of some kind, you really do need to do your due diligence. If it's more of a local, you know, a service-based opportunity in a, in a, uh, a constrained geography, Let's say I want to be the best at this mm-hmm. um, pineapple upside down cake within, um, you know, the Dallas Fort Worth market. I could probably figure out if you have any competitors pretty quickly, you know, defined product, constrained market. Uh, but in some of these markets, it's really tough. Well, and, and that that is really um it's, it's fascinating, but it's it's a good point for an entrepreneur to think of. Um, it shouldn't derail them, but it, it's due diligence. And But it, like you said, it's hard because we get emotionally wrapped up in these great ideas that 
that we come to. Um, and I love that. That's the entrepreneurial spirit, by the way, right? So, Russ, I got to tell you, we're coming to the end of the show. This has been just extraordinary, and I really appreciate it. If you had just one piece of advice to leave for our audience um, today is, you know, they're per, maybe they're second half entrepreneurs, as we've talked about, thinking about launching some some new thing that's in, interesting to them, or they're just business owners been doing their thing for a long time and they're looking at the next 20, 30 years in a different way. What, what advice would you leave them with today? Well, um, it may sound strange, but I would, uh, one of my bits of advice would be to celebrate often. It's great. Celebrate as much as is warranted. Uh, in my first software company, uh, you know, we might hit a new milestone. Like we were in the, you know, the first time we were in the Inc. 500. Great, let's all get together and do something. And then the next day we shut it off and we all go back to work. You know, and that's fine. But, you know, there's just certain, I think, teams love to celebrate wins together. And I was slow to learn that. Still am. But um, I'd say you learn as an entrepreneur and as a team to celebrate. I think... I think another thing is, especially in the second half, is you, you've got to be doing things that you really love, right? So you know, a lot of a lot of um, well, I've been I've been quoted as saying, "I'm at the point in my life where I've got to love what I do, really enjoy the people I work with, and I've got to at least like the people I do it for." <laughs> that's, that's really good. Right? Yes, because. I know if, if if those three things get out of whack, and the first one is, do I love what I'm doing, right? Or if, or if the people you're working with or for or around are just too hard, it, things, I mean, it, it takes energy away. I, you know, now at 63, I have, I'm very, uh, I've held up very well as an entrepreneur physically, but I'm, you know, somewhere around 60, I began to realize there's not as much energy in my body on a daily basis as there used to be. And I have to, I have to take care of myself. I have to, what's it called? Uh, sleep. I have to sleep. <laughs> yeah. um, sleep for me in my 30s and 40s, even in my 50s, there were times it was just kind of optional. Really? And, but not now. And so I'd say take, especially... For the over 50 entrepreneur, take care of yourself. Figure out what self-care looks like for you, for your family, because that is what is going to give you kind of the energy and those foundational resources to go out and move into an area of passion and creativity and be that entrepreneur. Just terrific stuff. I, I, I got to tell you, it excites me. I hope our audience enjoys it. Listen, if Russ, if people want to learn more about Hostbridge or Backstage or, you know, where can they go to learn more about you and, and all the things that you're doing? Well, um, I guess if you're interested in learning more about me, you can always go to my LinkedIn profile. So I'm on LinkedIn as R. Tubner or Russell Tubner. I don't think there are too many of us wandering around with that name. Um, Hostbridge Technologies website is simply hostbridge.com. And Backstage Stillwater is just that. Okay. Backstage, all one word, dot, backstagestillwater.com.
Very good. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to travel to the, the office here this morning to our studio. Um, we've really appreciated it. And um, for the listeners, I hope you've gotten something out of today. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, um, you're listening to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. And I'm your host, Rick Hadrava. Thank you very much. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com formula. And remember, we're only getting started.